you and I met uh, a while ago. The first time I saw you, I was sitting in an audience of, I think, just under 700 people at the Construction Industry Institute. And you were about to go on stage and do a presentation on BIM and, and construction technology. And I was sitting next to one of one of our mutual friends, Thais. And Thais and I had been doing research for a while. And Thais elbowed me and said, pay attention. Fernanda's really good. <laughs> and I, I took an elbow right here. This is the spot where, where she hard? elbowed me. Welcome to the EBFC show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by Construction Accelerator. The design and construction industries come up with and build great things, but we also build and waste in how we do those things, in our interactions, in our contracts, in our logistics. So what does this do for our bottom line or our next project? The best firms maximize their value by removing that waste and only doing what's essential to the work, what makes them money. Construction Accelerator will train you to see the waste and give your teams the lean tools and experience to remove it immediately. All online, Construction Accelerator is made up of three to nine minute videos that can be watched again and again in the field, at the office, and at home, all broken down by topic. Need to learn pool planning? We have videos on the process, how to set up a room, and how to kick off a team. Need to set up a target value delivery project? We discuss all the aspects of TBD, especially cost. Or maybe you just need to brush up on 5S. Well, we have videos on that as well. You can download and print reference materials to use on site to immediately translate watching into doing. Subscribe today at tricanow.com. Let's build an industry not just a project. Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry and in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Now, to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fernanda Lechi. Hi, Dr. Fernanda. Hi, can I just call you Fernanda? Absolutely. She was right. You were uh, you were a force up there on the stage, and I was very impressed. I was and I was like excited about technology again in construction because can be a, a good thing and it can be troublesome at times. That presentation was part of a virtual reality study, so we right. worked on developing a, a guidebook for virtual reality for construction projects. And I think the gist of it is we've got to be intentional about the selection of any technology that we want to pursue. Um, and I even use the reference, I think I, I remember using the reference of a squirrel, right? Thinking about technology as a squirrel and you see something new and you're like, oh, squirrel, right? And then you go <laughs> after it and then you see another squirrel and you go after it, right? But if we keep doing that, uh, we're not intentional and, and really thinking about what's the, the most appropriate use case for that technology, for our projects, for our industry. So I think that's the, if, if I could say, what's the most important message from that? It's, it's just being intentional about the selection of, of technologies and using technologies and, um, and scanning, right? You're, you're, you're always looking, and that's something that, that I like to do. I like to be scanning um, for new technologies in other industries and just tidbits of ideas that might inspire what, what may become something ubiquitous in the construction industry in 10, 20, 30 years. Um, but we're always scanning. I think that lifelong learning um, is important for, for everyone in our industry as well. 
Lifelong learning is something that I absolutely love, and that's something I know that you and I share in common. We talked on the phone before we got ready for this, and uh, I think we we touched an hour just on our 15-minute prep phone call. (laughs) I could tell that you were very much a lifelong learner. You've got the degrees to prove it in the the insatiable curiosity, I would say. And you were, for those of you that didn't go to the Construction Energy Institute conference and saw Fernanda present, it was one of the first times, hand to God, that I saw a squirrel meme used in a presentation. And I, and I was like, I know. I turned to Thais and I said, it's going to be good. <laughs> so, Fernanda, please, uh, could you tell people a little bit about yourself so they get an idea of who you are, where your passions are, and what you're up to these days? So I am Fernanda Lechi. I'm an associate professor in the School of Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. So I'm part of the Construction Engineering and Project Management Group, which is within the Department of Civil, Architectural, and Environmental Engineering. I know that's long, long names. Um, I'm also affiliated to a cross-disciplinary program, which I helped create um, within civil engineering called Sustainable Systems. And I'm very passionate about that because uh, that's one of the things that when I first started at UT, and I've been at UT for 11 years, um, and I've, I teach project management economics at the undergraduate level. I teach BIM um, at the undergraduate and graduate level. I teach construction safety, which I'm teaching this semester online. Um, by the way, I can't make, wait to go back to, to campus into a real in-person classroom. One thing that I, that I desired to do when I first started at UT is to cross disciplinary, disciplinary boundaries. And that's one of the reasons that I was so passionate about, about helping create and help make a reality, this cross-disciplinary program. So I led the program for a few years and then I, I, I transitioned out of it to lead a university-wide Grand Challenges initiative called Planet Texas 2050. And that's a, a, a huge Grand Challenge. It's an eight-year program. We have over 100 researchers involved in it. And we look at the impact of climate change and population growth in our cities and infrastructure systems. So I do a lot of information modeling research, virtual reality research within Planet Texas 2050. But that's just the result of also my desire to to really cross that silo or or break down the silos. And and I think that's one of the ways that we can that can lead to innovation is if we were more uh, playful and we interact and we play nice with with um, with people from other disciplines. And we're we're always like learning from each other and, and trying to figure out what can I do with computer scientists that might help me. Uh, push the boundary of of what I'm doing in, in construction engineering. Um, so a lot of my research is sits at that. I would say it sits at the interface of engineering and computing. Um, so I, I got my PhD from Carnegie Mellon University, and that's a very uh, uh, tech. It's known for its computer science school. It's known for for technology, uh, and most of my courses in my PhD uh, program were in the School of Computer Science. So I was I was sort of trained that way coming from a program that's so highly interdisciplinary that I wanted to continue doing that and I still pursue that to this day um, as part of, of, of my, my role at the University of Texas um, as a, a, a professor and as a mentor. Um, and, and I just enjoy inspiring people, right? And, and, and it's, I'm, I'm so fortunate to, to be in, in, a, in a role, in a job that I just, get to learn new things every day and work with smart, motivated people every single day. Um, and, and I like to say that to my students, the, the hidden, uh, uh, they, they think I'm teaching them, but in reality, I'm learning from them every single day. 
and both students in my classroom and students in, in my research group. Uh, it's just amazing to work with, with each and every one of them. That's phenomenal. And you, you put in some gems there. I knew some of that in your background, but the, the one little surprise that you just caught me off guard is economics for project managers. Can you tell me more about that before we go further? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's basically teaching engineering economic approaches or uh, techniques or tools uh, that can help people make decisions that uh, will enable projects to be viable. So it's simple, like net present value, return on investment, incremental analysis, understanding um, finances, the basic of uh, basics of financing. I even go through exercises, simple exercises in class to compare um, what the return on investment of getting a, a master's degree in engineering versus only a bachelor's degree. By the way, it's totally worth it if, if you look at the financial <laughs> aspect only. And then we go a step further and we, we say, what about getting a PhD in engineering? Spoiler alert, not worth it from a return on investment <laughs> perspective. But uh, so, so sometimes we make decisions that are not purely uh, financial, uh, finance driven, right? But I think that if you have the tools, you can make better decisions. So we go through other examples in class, like uh, the, the real cost of owning a vehicle versus using ride sharing or public transportation, um, leasing versus uh, buying and, and all sorts of different different um, problems that we solve that are relevant to the students when at the, at the point in time where they're, they're taking that course. Most students are juniors, they're thinking about the next step in their career. So they really enjoy the, the uh, uh, course that we do in class exercise comparing you know, return on investment of only getting a, a bachelor's degree versus getting a bachelor's and master's. And they love, they just laugh at the, at the PhD piece of the analysis too. But we do that in class. As, as cl I do a lot of in-class exercises. I, I use a technique called active learning a lot in, in my classroom. We learn by doing. So we do a lot of in-class exercises, group discussions, mini projects, presentations, and that pretty much in every single one of my courses, I do the same thing. I use active learning in all of them. And it, it just helps the information stick more if you're actually learning by doing than just being passive in that classroom, just receiving that information. For those of the people watching this and thinking, how long until Felipe mentioned Scrum? Wait no more. Here it is. So in, in the Scrum framework for doing work, it's based on empirical process control theory, which is a lot of words just to say human beings learn by doing. And that's yeah. completely aligned with, with my approach and how we do things. I really like that, that you're showing those things to students early and getting their hands on. As project managers coming up in construction, many times decisions are made on should we lease this equipment? Should we rent this equipment? Should we purchase this equipment? Should we try to own this? And those types of decisions are, are not always made with, you know, thinking all the way through return on investment. Sometimes people are just looking at a, a budget value and do like, do I just have the money? And it's just like, if I have the money, I'll spend it to think about it in the way that you're, you're showing them with, you know, economic practice, you know, like, should I buy this car? Should I lease this car? How long am I going to have this car? What kind what types of needs do I have? Just a little bit more with those questions, I think makes for much stronger project management and, and better financial decisions and outcomes on site. So super love that you're doing that. So thank you for that. Appreciate that a lot. You mentioned that you went to, to Carnegie. I did a little digging and I like, uh, I followed some of the work that Andrew's done, you know, back in the day. And he had this slogan. I think he says, my heart's in the work. I lost count of how many times we would hear that. And and I think that's the the, the philosophy um, of, of the university, but I think it goes that that permeates in a lot of different schools it's especially engineering like we we 
people are, are very hardworking. Um, and, and I interacted mostly with graduate students at the time. I, I, I was a teaching assistant, so I interacted with some undergrads too at, at Carnegie Mellon, but people are just extremely hardworking in general. Um, and, and I think starting um, a university and, and creating that, that workforce there, so it started as the Carnegie Institute of Technology, and then it merged with the Mellon College of Science. It really was creating a workforce for the future that was needed for that region um, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that really had a, was a leader, a world leader in steel production. So engineering right. was a big deal um, at the time when, when Carnegie Mellon was created. And now they sort of shifted. It's a tech hub now. And much like Austin is, people say Austin is the new Silicon Valley. We had a lot of people from California moving to Austin. A big part of, of this attraction is when you have that critical mass, when you have people being trained that you can then recruit these, these big companies that are moving to those cities can recruit from. As educators, we feel we have a huge role to play in the workforce too, of, of training those next generation leaders, of, of training people that, that are going to change the world. And, and now I'm going to make a plug for, for the University of Texas uh, 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 slogan, which is what, what starts here changes the world. We're making a mark and, and we're, we're trying to make the world just a little bit better. I'll give, I'll give you a double plug on that. I was at a job and the project manager had gone to school in Oklahoma, which is some people say is North Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I just like doing that because it's fun. But uh, he mentioned University of Texas in particular said, I went here, but this is a really good school too. And they teach these types of things that, you know, all the schools in this area are kind of trying to model themselves after University of Texas. And this was just a casual conversation that he and I were having because he was talking about things like net present value and some of those same economic principles. And that's what just jogged my memory and made me think about Kenny. So thank you, Kenny, for giving a shout out to University of Texas, which you didn't even go to. <laughs> so I, I, I can tell, you know, from those things that you are very passionate about this. It comes across and I knew you'd be an awesome guest just for that alone. What got you started in construction? Like where'd the, where'd this come from? I'm originally from Brazil. Um, so I grew up partly in the US, partly in Brazil because my father uh, went to Texas A&M University for his PhD. He's an agricultural engineer. He actually got his master's and PhD there. So we lived in College Station while I was growing up for approximately seven years between his master's and PhD. Living that university, I spent, I, I, I would spend a lot of time at the university. In my summers, I would hang out in, 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 while he was working on his experiments in the lab. I would hang out, wait for him and walk in the, and spend a lot of time in the library, in the main library on campus. And then he would pick me up at the end of the day in the library where we'd go play tennis together. So I saw what that life of being a researcher was like through my father. And he's a professor now in, in, in Brazil. Um, when we went back to Brazil, I was 14 when he finished his PhD. And my grandfather, his father, was a developer of high-rise residential commercial construction in, in um, our hometown in the Northeast of Brazil. Um, I remember going to one of his job sites when I was eight years old, seeing the chaos and just feeling, well, this is really cool, right? This is, there's all this stuff going on, all these people working here. This is such a dynamic environment. I want to do this. I was in college. So fast forward, I, I, now I'm, I'm an undergrad in college. And, and then I started, since I could speak English uh, fluently, I went back to Brazil when I was 14. So I finished school and, and did my undergrad master's and came back for the, to the US for my PhD. But when I was an undergrad in Brazil, I taught English um, in an after school program just to make money. It was 
better money than flipping burgers as an undergrad. Um, yeah. So I, so I, um, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that so much. I just enjoyed teaching and seeing people learn and seeing the light bulb mo moments in people. And I remember having a conversation with my dad saying, I uh, really enjoy teaching. This is something that I'm passionate about this, but I'm also passionate about construction. So I'm a little bit conflicted. I don't know what to do uh, moving forward in my career. And my dad said, well, it's obvious you need to be a university professor. Um, so if just put those two passions together, but in order to do yeah. that, you're going to need to get a master's and a PhD. Okay. So I, I think I can do that. So then I did undergraduate research, uh, to prepare for, for a master's. I, I went to probably the, the most prestigious master's, uh, graduate program in, in construction engineering in Brazil, which is in the South of Brazil in the city of, of Porto Alegre and the federal university of Rio Grande do Sul. It's a long name. All yeah. the, the universities that the, the uh, top universities in Brazil are Federal University of in the name of the state. Um, and, and that's where Thais and I um, meet. We actually never, never uh, were in the same, uh, we, we weren't there at the same time. So she finished her master's and then went to Berkeley. Um, and this is Thais Alves. She's an associate professor at San Diego State University, and she's a very good friend of mine. Um, and she also got her master's in the same program that, that I did in, in Southern Brazil. And we've we've been friends since we crossed paths in, in academic conferences. And every time uh, one of us visits each other's cities for work or, or, or for, for fun, we, we definitely always find find time to hang out together. Being there in that program was uh, was just a wonderful experience for me. Um, I, I got to focus on, on on developing myself as a researcher. Um, I had a wonderful advisor, um, Carlos Formoso, who was the same advise, uh, advisor that Thais um, had for, for her master's program. And um, when I was there in the program, there was a professor from Carnegie Mellon who's Brazilian, who also got his master's from that same program with the same advisor that Thais and I had. And his name is Lucio Soibelman. And now he's a professor and department head at um, in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department at, at uh, the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And he would go every summer and teach a one-week course on machine learning applied to civil engineering. And I was like, oh, I'll take this course. It sounds fun. And I had zero background in computing at the time, right? Zero. I take this course and I'm like, wow, this is like super cool. I, I was like mind blown with, with uh, the potential of using like machine learning. That's really cool. And, and, and at the time, I think he called it data mining. But still, you know, I, I was really passionate about using how can we leverage data to make more intelligent decisions. And at the end of that one week course, he actually asked me, hey, have you thought about getting a, a, a PhD? Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm planning on getting a PhD. But at the time, I didn't even consider going to the U.S. for my PhD. I was I was thinking, oh, I'll just stay here, continue my PhD and um, and get a faculty position um, in, in Brazil. That was my my thought process at the time. And he's like, well, why don't you go to Carnegie Mellon? Well, I hadn't thought about that. But that sounds really cool. Then I, the only thing is that, well. I'm married. Um, my husband is also a master's student here. We were we 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 got married um, and started our our master's program together a month after we we got married. So we're both from the same hometown. We went to the same university, met in school. We and my husband is is the uh, associate director of research at the Construction Industry Institute, um, Daniel um, Oliveira. We don't have the same last names, which. Till today, I, I hear about um, 18 <laughs> years after we've been married. I still hear about that. Uh, 
But I joke with them saying that the year we got married was the year that Brazil changed uh, its law. So uh, uh, the the husband could change. He could have changed his last name to my last right. name if he had chosen to. So I'm like, okay. Fernanda, so, my yeah. last name and my wife were hyphenated the same. There you go. Look so at that. I changed mine. Use, yeah, yeah, you I'm, could use I'm me as an example. That. There you go. Take that, Daniel. That. Yeah. <laughs> Take that, Daniel. Yeah, I've known Daniel for a couple of years too. He's a good sport. And so um, then, then I, I was like, okay, wait, but we have to find a way to for the two of us. We we always really prioritized both of our careers uh, since we were undergrads. When we were trying to decide where to go for for our masters, it was always a matter of where can we both find opportunities. And we both managed to get into Carnegie Mellon, and we both managed to get graduate research assistants, so working as a PhD students that would be fully funded PhD students that um, in exchange for, for working in research projects, we would get you know, our tuitions, we would get a stipend and, and whatnot, so, which made it feasible for us at the time. Carnegie Mellon is a private school and tuition is, is pretty insanely high. So if it weren't for that, we, we wouldn't be, have, that, have had that opportunity. But fun fact is I was also admitted to UT Austin. So the two programs that I had my eye on and when I was applying for a PhD were uh, Carnegie Mellon and the University of Texas at Austin. And my colleagues at UT always joke saying, well, you ended up here anyway. We ended up getting you. <laughs> I still got you. <laughs> uh, and, and so then we, we went to Carnegie Mellon. And, and, that's, and I, I remember my first semester at Carnegie Mellon and um, one of my committee members, um, Omer Aiken, he was one of, one of the first PhD students of uh, the biggest name in BIM, Chuck Eastman. So Chuck Eastman passed away last year. He he uh, was uh, one of the authors of the BIM, BIM handbook. Um, he was a professor at Georgia Tech, but he, he also was a professor at Carnegie Mellon in the 1970s, I believe. Um, I'm actually in the leading one of the tracks for the Eastman sy Symposium that will take place uh, May 13th. In, in honor of his his legacy in academia. Omar, so he, I, I was meeting with Omar one day and he and I was taking this course called Data Structures and it was probably the hardest course that I had ever taken. I, this is a person that didn't have computing background and I was having mm -hmm. to, to code an airport simulator. And so I was having to, to learn that and I had never felt that kind of challenge in my life. And so I, I, I remember calling my dad and, and telling them, you know, I think they made a mistake. They shouldn't have admitted me to this program. Um, I don't think I deserve to be here. And so I, I went to, to, to Omer's office and I, and I told him, and he was like this quintessential academic. He was drinking, sipping his, his tea. And I walk into his office, he puts his tea down. Here, I'll, I'll channel him. Yeah, there you go. And I tell him that, look, if what it takes to succeed in, in this program is to finish this course successfully. I don't think I can do it. This is not for me. And then he puts his tea down and he says, you know, I've, I've uh, seen students like you before. You're the type of student that everything just came naturally and, and you learn really easily. And now you're, you're finding the, 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 one of the biggest challenges that you've faced in academic career. One thing I can say is that, you know, there's, hundreds of you uh, here at Carnegie, you are always like the standout in your academic, well, now there's like hundreds of you. Um, you go back to your office and you work hard. Um, and that's again, what the whole philosophy, right? Of Carnegie Mellon, the art is, 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 is in the work. And uh, go back to your office and just uh, work hard and you'll do it, you can do it. And till this day, that was the proudest A minus that I ever got. And you know, all of my degrees. Uh, I, yeah. I worked very hard. I spent about 40 hours, but I finished 
that airport simulator um, using queuing theory. And I was done. And I and, and that really empowered me to, to really push. And that's a lot of what, what a PhD program is. It really pushes you to your limit. And, and you really have to feel feel comfortable with that feeling of possibly things going wrong. And that's that also is what research is, is like. So if we knew what the outcome of research would be, it wouldn't be called research. And I, I always tell that to my students, like research is about failing. You learn to, you become a stronger researcher when you learn from, from the failures, when you learn from, from those mistakes. You know, if you see somebody's curriculum, um, you only see the wins, right? You only see, like, if you look at my CV, my students are like, oh, look at all those publications. Yeah, but you don't see all the rejections, right? Uh, <laughs> right and there's don't. plenty of them in, in our career, but we learn from them. We just become stronger people. And that goes for any profession, right? We all learn from our mistakes and, and that just makes us stronger. But being comfortable with failure, it's because you're always pushing that boundary. And that's something that you you learn to to, uh, to be okay with as you progress in, in your career. And I love it that Omar pushed you. That was really cool. Pushed you and then uh, you honed in on that perfect Pittsburgh accent. I'm still trying to hear any hint of Texas and nothing's coming through. People have, a, uh, have trouble figuring out where I'm from, even when I speak Portuguese. So when I go to Brazil and I give talks, I, one of the questions that I always get is, where are you from in Brazil? So I don't have like a foreigner's accent in Portuguese, but since yeah. I moved around so much, uh, I, I have like that standard Portuguese accent. The Rosetta Stone textbook Portuguese, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's, you can tell I'm, I'm, I'm Brazilian. Talk to my, my husband, Daniel. He has a, a Northeastern accent. Thais has a very Northeastern accent, yes. um, but mine is more like standard. Um, so I always get that question, like, where are you from? And uh, people are surprised when I say, I'm from here. This is my, this is my hometown. Yeah. <laughs> people are like, what? <laughs> it's got to be cool to be in your class too. If you, if you teach like this, oh, you've got to have all your classes just filling up right away. For the 11 years I've been teaching BIM, oftentimes the wait list is larger than the number of seats in the class. So usually if I have 36 seats, the wait list is maybe 50 students long. And there, so, so people enroll in that class, like in the first seconds that enrollment opens, they enroll and you yeah. can, I can see that from the timestamps of, of when people <laughs> enroll in the class. It's literally like seconds <laughs> apart and then it fills yeah. up. A lot of people saw BIM come out in the 90s and they're like, this is gonna revolutionize construction revolutionize i mean that's what people were saying and and we still see that a lot of companies latched onto it and there's still many organizations i honestly get contacted by bim startups and and even well-established companies on linkedin weekly what got that sparked out for you and how do you see the potential so when i was a graduate student at carnegie mellon uh, there was a, a building under construction the new school of computer science building in the middle of campus and that was called the gates building um, and it was funded by bill gates the general contractor for that project was had heard of this thing called bim this was in the um, early 2000s so he had heard they had heard about this thing called bim and my phd supervisor Burtu Akinji. She had uh, a good relationship with, with this company. She had had several students do studies in this company. That's something that we typically do in, in the construction engineering domain is our lab are active job sites, active construction projects. So we send our students to, to a lot of projects and, and she did the same um, at the time. So she had a really strong relationship 
with that company. She sent me to that job site, learn from it and do different things in that job site. And one thing that that sparked my interest was design coordination. And then with this thing, this new BIM thing starting, I went and I recommended to the general contractor. The GC had actually hired a third-party company to create the model out of the drawings, right? The 2D drawings of the project. And there was this BIM model. It had architectural, structural, mechanical, electrical, plumbing in the model. And, and I was like, I saw this model. And then they were about to start design coordination. And then I go to them and I say, how about we do design coordination using the model as opposed to using 2D drawings, overlaying them on the light table? Oh my gosh, it was like major pushback from the subcontractors and they're like, we didn't sign up for this. We were hired and they said, we're not going to do this. We're just going to keep doing uh, business as usual. So it took them, it was like something like seven to nine months to coordinate that project, 210,000 square feet because they were overlaying the 2G drawings on a light table. I participated in every single one of those weekly coordination meetings that lasted anywhere between five to eight hours each. Pause for everybody. Just to get context, this is the 2000s. This is the early 2000s. I mean, BIM is arguably a little bit early 90s, but like 1995, those kind of mainstream and anyone can buy, I mean, not cheaply, but you can buy this type of software package and get a really good computer and, and it, you could use it. And we, there were some very forward thinking companies in the 2000s using it. So I just want to just remind everybody what, what the time period is, because a lot of people just, you know, take it for granted now because it's just so every day on sites, kind of like safety glasses now. Eight out of me every week. And um, what I would do in that meeting is I would document what, um, who, who, who were the trades that were coordinating at the time? What were their information exchanges? So what questions were they asking each other? So this is a 2D. So a lot of the questions was, what's the elevation? What's the clearance here? So a lot of information that in 3D would be pretty easy to, you wouldn't even need to ask that kind of question. I documented all of their information exchanges and all of the clashes, the types of clashes and the number of clashes that they found for every single one of those meetings. And then I would go back to my office at, at Carnegie Mellon at the end of the day and repeat that same section of coordination with the same trades that work for those five to eight hours, repeat that and do the same thing in a couple of minutes and then document what I found, how many clashes and the types of clashes that I found. We have a huge challenge in, in, in construction engineering is our projects, and from a research perspective, is our projects are unique. So they're like one-off prototypes. We have one project and that's it. If you're trying to do a study that you're trying to create like a control group and a treatment group, so the treatment group would be using BIM and the control group is the current approach, so 2D on a light table, that's really hard to do in, in, or to try to replicate that or create that environment in research, right? So I really had that opportunity in that study. I had the BIM model. I had the skills to be able to update it if there were any changes based on, on the coordination that was happening. So I did that comparison. What I found was that uh, in the, the 2D approach, they had, um, so I used two metrics from, so this is now my prof professor side. So two metrics of, okay. uh, from the information retrieval domain, precision and recall. And, and I'll use the same explanation that I use in, in my BIM class. So think about Google. So when you Google something, let's say the University of Texas at Austin, the first result in your Google search will likely be utexas.edu, the main UT website. 
That means Google has a high precision rate. It returned, and in the top result, what you were looking for. If you just Google the generic title of the university, you're probably looking for the main website. But if you scroll all the way down to the, the results page, you're going to see that there's hundreds, thousands of, of pages that you can uh, that, that Google found that cite the University of Texas at Austin. That means Google has a high recall rate. It's catching. It's finding every single site web page that cites that term that you are looking for. Now going back to, to design coordination, how does that relate? So if you look at expert coordinators or, or subcontractors, sub, subject matter experts, when they're doing a coordination um, in, in 2D on a light table, they had a very high precision rate. So the clashes that they found were real clashes that, that really had to be addressed. But they had an extremely low recall rate, something like 10%. 15%. What that means is that they weren't finding nearly as many clashes as they should, and that resulted in field detected clashes. And you know what that leads to? Change orders. Change orders, yes. And delays <laughs> and increased costs and all that. So that's the that's the problem there with that uh, manual uh, design coordination. In the BIM uh, world, we get very high recall rates. So basically, so long as it's modeled, we'll find it. But we're currently getting lower precision rates, which means we get also get a lot of noise with our data. Um, so we get a lot of false positives and that has to do with model quality. So sometimes if you if multiple people are using different software systems, you export to a model coordination software, some objects may explode, like an example would be a valve it's modeled actually about 15 different objects that compose that valve object. And uh, if it's clashing with, let's say, a section of a duct, that will return 15 clashes when in reality only one is a true positive clash and the rest are false positives. So noise in your data. Mm -hmm. So you've got to clean out. That's what the, the VDC engineer or the BIM coordinator is going to do. So they sort of figure out what are the clashes that are real clashes. They, let's clean out the noise and they figure out approaches to clean the model. And you run through just the clashes that uh, need to be solved um, with that group of people. And and that now we see these coordination meetings happening in an hour Zoom meeting, right? It's a lot more efficient now just because we know we get um, high recall rates. So long as the information is in the model, um, it will catch it. Um, and and BIM coordinators are now more, more efficient too in how they prepare for those uh, coordination sessions. What was the difference between the 2D light table, and I know it was, it was a while ago, versus what you were seeing, what you were capturing and doing in, in less of the time? Yes, yeah, so it's, that was the, the precision and the recall uh, rate. Um, so for, in the 2D light table, we were getting varies too by, by the pairwise comparison that you're doing, by what trades you're comparing. But it, it, I would say roughly about 20% recall rate, between 10 and 20% recall rate. So only finding 10 to 20% of the actual clashes that you should be finding. The precision rate in the 2D light table was nearly 100%. And then we had the opposite in in uh, BIM, so the, it's an inverse relationship, nearly 100% recall rate, but uh, because of all the noise in the data, uh, the precision rate was anywhere between 20 to 40%. So the, the message is if we, we want to try to decrease that noise in the data. So it's important to really consider the quality of your, or your model, how much information you want to put in your model that's relevant for that design coordination. So one, one message that I always tell my, tell my students in class is just because we can model doorknobs or we can model all sorts of little details in the model, 
is that even relevant for that process that you're trying to to use that model for, for design coordination, you're probably not going to need that information. So you shouldn't be modeling it because it's going to lead to, um, you know, more noise in your model in the design coordination process. And it's more information for you to keep track of and, and having to manage when there's updates in the model. I love that practical spin on there. Yeah. I'm going to replay that. That's going to be my clip to all the people that want to model everything and have a digital twin. Like, no, it shouldn't be a digital twin exactly. It should be a digital practical twin. Yeah, and it, it also depends on what you're using the model for, right? So you can't have a super detailed model. Maybe you you want to uh, test out the connections in the exterior enclosure or every single piece and part or, or a specific sequence of activities. But in a small piece of the model, if you have a 210,000 square foot uh, building, you probably don't want to have all that detail in it. So it's just going to be right. a lot of time um, invested in modeling for little to no return on that investment. There's that economic thinking. There you go. You're, yeah. you're so practical. Like what's going to be the return? Like we only have limited time. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Some people like Bill Gates have nearly unlimited resources, but many of us, but even he is subject to limited time. We all only have 24 hours in the day. So we have to be very effective of, in how we use that time so that we're solving the problems we need to be solving. Right. And on, on that note, I can tell that, uh, you know, often I hear from, from people that come on the show that are lifelong learners and definitely having an impact. And I can say hundred percent from what I've heard the last time we talked, when I saw you on stage and now you're absolutely having an impact, a positive impact on our industry. So thank you for that. If uh, your students don't say thank you enough, on behalf of all of your students, and I, I wasn't one, but thank you for your contributions to our industry and profession. I do want to ask you your opinion on continuous improvement. What do you know about it? Because, I mean, you're friends with Thais, so you know that lean's got to come up at least every other time you talk. So what do you what do you think about that? Right. So, so I think that we can always improve things. I think it's a matter of, and, and, and also you, you can only improve what you, you measure, right? So if we understand a problem, um, any problem, and we understand uh, we can we can measure um, a, a process or, or a time or whatever metric it may be, we can figure out ways to improve it. Um, but we can only improve what we can measure. Um, but I think having that mentality of uh, that open open mindedness of, of saying we anything, any process can can be more efficient can, or more effective. Right. Any single process. I think that's the, the philosophy that uh, we have to uh, carry out in everything that we do every day. So we can always improve. Um, it's a matter of and I tell that to my, to my Ph.D. students as well when they're writing papers that sometimes you you want to, to, to refine that eternally. Right. So you can you can be working on a paper and never be done or, or a PhD dissertation never be done. But at some point, you've got to say it's good enough and let's move move forward. But understanding that uh, there's always an opportunity for, for improvement. Perfect definition of continuous improvement. Thank you, Fernanda. The potential for BIM today, now it's 2021 and computers are much more powerful. I think my my phone computer is more powerful than the laptop I had when I first got into the industry back in the 90s. Where do you see things going now with, with BIM and, and computing getting smaller and faster? We can now do more and, and maybe more intelligent, automated decision making. So design coordination is an example. Even though you're using a model coordination software, a lot of them are replicating what we do manually. They still do pairwise comparison between two trades. That's basically replicating what we do by overlaying 2D drawings on a light table, but we're using a machine to automatically find those clashes. 
And a lot of that can be automated as well. And route planning can be automated. There's a lot of research going on in generative design that can help automate. Imagine like an autocomplete for, for design coordination, right? So I think that we can leverage more, now that we have more data, leverage more um, artificial intelligence to automate a lot of processes just to make our work more efficient. Think about, you know, 10 years ago or, or no, more than that, 15, 20 years ago, we were uh, doing the coordination and, and five to eight hour meetings. Now it's a one hour meeting. Maybe uh, 10 years from now, it'll be a five minute check-in, right? And I think that with automation comes these efficiencies in our processes. And we can then, as humans, we can dedicate our time to more high level thinking, strategic thinking, right? Because a lot of the very repetitive tasks, and that's what machines are great at. Machines are really great at doing very repetitive work that us humans were not good at. We get bored. Uh, we we need right. novelty. and And I think we should leverage technology to do all the, the repetitive tasks so that we can dedicate our, our time to, to think about the construction engineering aspect, really the, the complex decision-making that is really hard for a machine to do and requires a lot of computing power. But for us, it may be easy. There's a whole field in, in, in computer science called human computation. And an example of this field is you probably, when you were buying like back in the pre-pandemic days, let's say a ticket for a, a concert or a, a sports event. And when you're buying the ticket, you see those the, those squiggly words, you know, those images, distorted images. Um, yeah. So so that's a CAPTCHA um, or um, that was a startup uh, from, from years ago. It was basically to try to figure out if it was a human that was buying that ticket or a bot um, that was then uh, developed by, by scalpers, right? So they could resell those tickets. So it was checking because that computer vision um, 10 years ago was a, a very challenging task. So, so if you look at a distorted image or a distorted word, um, that's as a human, you can quickly interpret that image, those distorted words. But for a machine, that's a very, very difficult task. With that in mind, then we can use that to check if whoever's buying that basketball ticket or that concert ticket is a human or a machine. Let's just show distorted uh, image of a word. And if they get it right, then it's a human. Then the, the researchers that developed that created a new approach that, well, we, we're not getting anything out of this where humans have this computation power that to do something to interpret these these distorted images that is so hard for a machine to do but we're not leveraging this we're just confirming um the the words that we already know well how about we start we start using that power for good so basically that's where recaptcha captcha came in that uh, you you now see two images right one is is a distorted word that checks if if you get it get it right or not if you're a human or not and then the second one is a new word so if you got it right then the likelihood of you getting the second one right is high but that second one you're actually helping populate a database that's helping decode scanned images of old books that um, might be hard for like an automated you know uh, coding uh, to to find because the words were distorted but you're helping do that and so oh that God. that collective computing collective computing and that's because that's the power of human computation there are tasks that are still very very difficult for machines to do and that require a lot of computation that we can leverage um, our brains to do that's the same idea when i started my a national science foundation project that i like to call living bim and living bim is is when i was writing this proposal i i thought well buildings, facilities, they're like living organisms. They change throughout their life. And we have all this this uh, cool cool stuff that's going on in VDC and BIM in design and construction. When, when general contractors finish the project, hand that off to the owners, 
I wasn't seeing like owners using that model for much, right? How can we get people to actually use these, these models in the life cycle of the facilities, the longest phase of the project life cycle. At UT, we build uh, for 100 year construction, 100 years. We should be able to use these models and we're not. And why is that? Because current state, we don't have the in-house capacity in owner organizations to update these models. And so the whole idea behind Living BIM is, well, how do we remove the human from the equation? So again, that human computation aspect, how do we get humans to focus on what they're good at and what can we automate? Can we automate the process of updating BIM models without a, a human having to open a model authoring software system and let's say moving a door from one, one place to another? How can we automate that? And in this project, the route that we ended up taking was um, using a combination of computer vision and deep learning, which is a subfield in machine learning. We ended up using a, an approach called transfer learning. A lot of databases that exist, computer vision databases that are publicly available. ImageNet is one um, and uh, Coco is another. So Microsoft Coco is another. You have a lot of these images that are labeled. So it's like teaching a kid, right? So mm -hmm. my, when my daughter was, was um, you know, a baby, I would point to something, you know, a, a, a mug, or a cup or, or, or a pen, uh, whatever it may be, that's how kids learn. And that's how you can train algorithms to learn uh, what, what the, these objects in the real world are as well. But we need lots of examples. So we use transfer learning because there's a lot of data labeled out there already in the built environment, like for walls, for windows, for, for objects that, that any human would know what what they are, but we augmented that that database with our own data that we collected. We manually labeled with the help of dozens of undergraduate students, of very hardworking oh, undergraduate students. Undergrads, they make research possible in so many there places. There you go. Uh, they definitely do, and I'm I'm very very lucky to work with super smart undergrads. They labeled a data that in our specialty data set, so a data set that contains objects that your average person would likely not know what they are, uh, but they are part of building systems. Things like um, variable air volume box or an air diffuser or a sprinkler head. Um, so things that are a little bit more specialty in, in the built environment. So we call that 3D facilities and it's publicly available too. So the, it's labeled data, anybody can, can use that data. We published it via Zenodo, which is you know a website that people share code in. Then we use this the data that already existed, our data on top of that. We use that to train a deep learning um, algorithm to learn what they're seeing in the built environment. And if they know what they're seeing in their built, built environment, and if we show them an original BIM model, we overlap, let's say a, a point cloud with a BIM model, and there's a difference, they know what that object is. And then we can use generative design to actually move that door to where it should be in the physical world. So that's where we're at right now. We're in the last phase of this project that we're actually in that, the modifying the model phase. We, we did all the training, we built the database. Now we're in the, the generative design uh, piece of it. Well, that's, that's really cutting edge. Yeah, and it's fun. It's, it's extremely fun. I think that the two PhD students that worked in this uh, project, one is now a professor at Arizona State University, um, Thomas um, Chernyowski, and the other, Zhongwon Ma, they both had to take a lot of uh, courses in computer science. They had committee members um, or have committee members, members from the computer science department. So they're another example of crossing those disciplinary boundaries. We can only do that this, this kind of cutting edge research if you have the skill set. So you sort of have to go and learn from uh, computer scientists about 
how to optimize algorithms. And, and we're lucky too, because UT has the largest supercomputer of any university in the world. This is our TAC, our Texas Advanced Computing Center. We're able to tap into TAC and run these computations, which is a lot quicker when we're training the neural network. It's, it's a lot of data, so we can do that a lot quicker if we're using a supercomputer as opposed to a high-end office machine, right? A desktop computer um, or a high-end laptop. And then there's several different approaches that they, they, they're working on. John Juan is working on developing um, how do you parallelize or, or you leverage parallel computing uh, to really optimize those processes. That's how we got to when you pointed to your phone, right? How we got to the computing power. It's a lot faster than my computer when I started working in this field. That's called Moore's Law, right? Every two years, right. computing power doubles, right? And so it's it's a matter of multiple people also figuring out ways of of how algorithms can work more efficiently. We really need to learn from a lot about computer science, from computing to be able to push that boundary and enable our industry to process information more effectively by really leveraging the power of, of computing and artificial intelligence. We can do more. We're all collecting, now that we're all using all sorts of data management systems, project management systems in our projects, we have lots and lots of data. We're drowning in data. We need to make sense of data and we, we need to do that by again, leveraging what machines are great at, which is doing a lot of repetitive tasks, doing a lot of automation, artificial intelligence, and that frees up time for us humans to be doing human computation, the, the high level, really complex tasks that are hard for machines to do. And we do borrow quite a bit from computer science, like even in, and again, here's another reference to Scrum. Jeff Sutherland introduced me to Brooks Law and Brooks Law is something that came from computer science for specifically com computer programming projects. Adding more people to a project that's late makes it later. And they had uh, data from software programs because they could pull data out of the coding programs to see with timestamps and how things had done. And when projects got behind schedule, human instinct is just to add more people to it which works when things are simple, but in programming, it's complex because it's a language and things, when you change one thing, it has multiple step consequences that are hard for us to see immediately. Crossing of all of these disciplines goes back to that, what you started with, empiricism, learning by doing. Your researchers learning, had to learn new things. Your They had to bring on committee people where they found gaps. I'm really looking forward to the day where we can have a, a living model and because we do a lot of uh, tenant improvements and changes and Never has a client said, oh, and by the way, here's an as-built model of the building right now. now we don't, we're lucky if we can get as-built 2D drawings of what was done. And we've spent enormous amounts of human effort just uncovering what's there in front of us. Whereas if we had that living model like you're working on, then uh, you know people can get focused on what they really want, which is to have a building that works for them, that suits their need, fit for purpose. And, and that's all about figuring out what are the processes in the AAC industry that could be made more efficient. It's again, going back to the conversation that we were having about continuous improvement. There's always things that we can improve. We just have to find that that nugget. And that's another thing that we, I always tell my students, and, and this goes again with that CII presentation on virtual reality. Some people like want to join my research group because they wanna do research in virtual design and construction or BIM. I wanna do research in BIM. Well, what is the problem you're trying to solve? That's the first yes. thing that you should be asking. <laughs> Right. Yes. What it might not be BIM, right? Something sometimes pen and paper might be enough for might the problem you're trying to address. But I think that it's and, and that's the challenge with technology. And that goes for industry, that goes for research, for academia. It's the hammer and the nail problem, right? So you have this hammer, whatever technology du jour 
you have, yeah. everything starts looking like, like a nail. You can break everything around you. So what you really need to find is that nail. So what is the problem you're trying to solve? What is that process that you're trying to make more efficient? How do we measure efficiency in that process that you're trying to do? And then you start trying to try to figure out what is the most appropriate technology to solve that problem? Does that exist? Does that exist in our industry? No. Does that exist in other industries? Something that we can adapt to our industry? No. Well, maybe we've got to come up with something. That's also the, where we came with the inspiration for one of a more recent CII project that, that I led called Path to the Future. And the Path to the Future, the whole goal of the project was to inspire step change and innovation in the construction industry. The whole inspiration in, in, in this, this project, what came from the Jetsons cartoon. So think about it. So the Jetsons, that was developed in the 1960s. And a lot of the technologies, I watched I watched the reruns when I was a kid. So did I. Um, so in the early 80s, that 20 years before that was developed, it was still really cool and innovative. And a lot of those technologies, like wearable uh, watches, flat screen TVs, flying things like drones, jet packs, those inspired an entire generation of engineers and scientists to actually make those things a reality. So sometimes we really have to be a little more playful and looking at trying to identify what is the problem that I'm trying to address? What if I don't have any constraints? What if I can just create something totally crazy and totally new, just like cartoonists did in the 1960s with the Jetsons? That's what inspired us in Path to the Future. And it was super fun to work with this group. We developed basically a series of workshops. The challenge with industry folks is that they're always firefighting. It's hard for them to put themselves in the mindset of being creative and being playful because they're, they want to solve a problem and move on. And they always have that previous problem lingering over them and impacting the kinds of solutions they make. So how do we then develop a creative process with people that might be unencumbered by previous work experience? That's again where undergrads come in. Held it in three different universities across the US, one at uh, the University of Texas at Austin, one at Carnegie Mellon University and one at Georgia Tech. And we had over 100 students participate and show up in a Saturday afternoon. And the way that we convinced them to, to show up, we just put posters all around these three universities, <laughs> is uh, we called it Mars Industries. So come and help us build the next generation habitat in Mars. And so people signed up. And the reason why we chose Mars is because we need to put ourselves outside of our of our boundaries, our constraints, our typical access to resources that we may have. If we put yourself in a totally different environment, you're going to have to be creative because you don't have access to the same resources that you have, let's say, here on Earth, Earth to build something. Basically gave them a series of, of tasks, mini tasks throughout the day to solve that problem, uh, to build a colony in Mars. They came up with literally thousands of ideas and and we collected all the post-its that we had to then organize and make sense of i had post-it nightmares after those <laughs> workshops because all i could see were all those post-its flying uh, falling off the wall like this just uh, flying like just oh flying gosh, at you yeah yeah crazy no and and it was like thousands stacks of them <laughs> <laughs> um, we made sense of all that information, took them to SMEs in the industry. So this was the Technology and Innovation Committee at CII. They sort of made sense of all that information, identified 12 technology enablers that would, again, remove burdens uh, from uh, the human so we can focus on high-level thinking. What can we do? Uh, what are these technology enablers that can help us 
focus on what we're really good at. Things like modularization, like automation are examples of, of a technology enabler. And then we, we created a program. We thought that was really fun with students, but then how do we change that culture in our industry? So we created a, an ideation program called Challenge Teams. The way that it works is we put together a group of people from industry, from different companies, and they work remotely and they work on solving a problem, one problem that's given to them, and they have six weeks to do it. They have to identify technological solutions for that problem, thinking about three different uh, timeframes in mind. What if you only have five years? What if you have 10 years? What if you have 30 years? Five, 10, 30. Basically thinking about what technologies do we have now available that we could help, help solve this problem? What technologies other industries may be developing or, or that we can then adapt to our industry? And what are those crazy ideas that um, a cartoonist from Jetsons might think of applied to our industry, putting them in that frame of mind. And then the problems that we give them are extreme. And what I mean by extreme is that's again, trying to replicate the idea of putting students in Mars, giving them a challenge that seems so crazy right now that they're, they're really gonna have to think outside the box. An example is how do we build a project with no humans in a job site? I mean, zero humans. It's an extreme problem by design. You really have to make people think, no, it's, I, don't, I don't mean half the humans that you have, no, it's zero. And when we give them those challenges, they always look at us like, really? How are we gonna come up with that? You have six weeks, come back and tell me in six weeks. <laughs> We just have so much fun in this process. So uh, we're already in, I think, Challenge Team 12. We launch two challenge teams every few months, um, and it's all managed uh, through through CII's uh, Technology and Innovation Committee. And I, I just launch the teams and I brainstorm some of the, the, the challenges uh, via, via the, the, the committee that leads this process with a lot of SMEs from the Technology and Innovation Committee. But it's just super fun for me to be part of and to hear what people come up with and the inspirations that led to their solutions. They, all, they like to engage their kids, do, drawing cartoons. Some use Hollywood. As, as inspiration, Hollywood movies, action movies. So it's, it's just fun to watch, you know, them having fun in this process and the ideas that they come up with. And it's a culture change, right? The whole point is right. how do we create that culture of continuous improvement, of really trying to think outside the box, of removing yourself from your day-to-day -day firefighting mode and giving yourself that, that um, opportunity to be playful and to think about things from a different perspective. That'll help change that culture in our industry and inspire our industry to lead that, that step change in, in technological development. Yeah, I think it will. You, you have a great framework there for people to completely step out. The magic in that is how you created some constraints, even though you said like constraint free, you still have the constraint of like how much time you have, and then you're constraining them on the thinking. I think it's brilliant because things that I can do right now, I'm, I'm gonna, as a human being, I'm surveying the landscape of what's possible today and then I got to think completely different, like just let my mind wander to go to that 30 year mark. If you think backwards 30 years ago, you know, we didn't give children cell phones. And now every kid in most of the industrial countries are born and given phones immediately to pass the time with. Radically different. How, how much closer technology has come to us compared to what it used to be. If you think about technological development, rate of development is exponential. So we all know what an exponential curve looks like now with COVID, right? So, yeah. and it's the same thing with with uh, technology in our industry. When when did we start seeing smartphones? Not too long ago, and and it's no. iPads. You know, th that's that really has revolutionized how we interact with data and how we process information and how we access information. It's 
it's really impacted so many industries, just um, uh, that availability of data that we all um, have now in, in, in all sorts of different types of, of fields. You took me out beyond the edge of where I thought you were going to take me with with technology. So thank you for that. Is there anything in like in the stories or in the papers that you've written or the research you've been a part of that's really stood out to you as just a fundamental success that if more people knew about, you think it would make the speed the change up in the industry even further? That's a really good question. I'll go back to the human computation aspect. I think we, we do have to always ask ourselves, what can we do better? And is there uh, technology available out there for, for that? For example, virtual reality might work really well for some use cases like training, it might not be uh, great for other uh, use cases that maybe augmented reality or mixed reality might work uh, better in. So I think always asking yourself, what's the best technology for that use case, that problem that you're trying to solve? Is it available? Can we adapt it from another industry? Or do we have the capacity to develop something new if, if that doesn't exist? I think understanding the, the process that you're trying to, to improve is the first step. Scan for technologies, I would say is the next step because likely, there's something that can help you be more efficient. It might not be the perfect tool, but it might help you think as you're doing, right? And develop those those ideas as you're tinkering, trying to make that thing work um, and, and help you think out loud as, as, you're, as you're doing. So that learning by doing as well. Nice, I like that. Do you have like some secret crush on industrial engineering? Because a lot of the stuff that you're, you're talking about are... It seems like you're very attuned with a lot of the folks that I know that are industrial engineers. I mean, just keenly process oriented. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's my lean construction background because that, that the master's program that I went through in uh, in southern Brazil where Thais came out of that's very lean uh, focused, and and I think that's definitely something that that sticks with me is is looking at how can we map processes. Uh, value chain mapping, right? How can we identify what's non-value adding and remove that from the equation? But then I, 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 I like to think about it from a computing perspective. So if we understand the problem, what pieces and parts can be automated in that in that process? Where what's the fat that we can remove from from that process, or maybe completely change it? Because you get more of what you want faster and with less effort. And hopefully, we'll have like a five-minute workday in in the future. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We can all be hiking all day. <laughs> all day. We can just be taking things in. Yep. We could be learning how to program more. If you if there you're into you go. That, yeah, because right? we still need humans. It's not like we're saying a lot of people are afraid of technology or afraid of automation. Oh, the the, the people are gonna lose their jobs. No, it's just gonna change the kinds of jobs that are that exist. We still need people programming these machines. We still people uh, need people maintaining these machines. It's just different jobs. Right. So so um, I, I think that we all have to, to have that culture of being flexible to retool as industry changes and learning new things. And that's another thing that that's important of of being having that mindset of, of lifelong learning, because you'll always be at the cutting edge of whatever it is that you're doing. And when you have to retool, you have that capacity, that that mental uh, brain flexibility to just learn something new um, and and you'll be fine. Right. We're always going to need people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Fernanda, thank you so much for your time. I've learned a ton. I'm going to have to rewatch this myself just so I can further my studies here and see what's going on in the industry. I really appreciate you spending time with us and sharing some of the research you've done with University of Texas and even before. 
So thank you so much. You get the last word before you say goodbye to everybody. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, thank you for, for reaching out and for uh, having this conversation. I really enjoyed um, talking to you. And I'm very optimistic about what the future holds for, for our industry. And I know that this industry can inspire um, an entire generation of kids to go into STEM and to, to go into construction engineering because they see that it's it's really cool and and we're doing we're doing robotics too we're doing automation we're doing 3d printing look at all this cool stuff we can also inspire the next generation leaders to to really want to to improve our industry as well thanks for having me very special thanks to my guest i'm felipe engineer manriquez the ebfc show is created by felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build.